Well, good morning. How's everyone today? How many fall fans do we have because the leaves were incredible driving in today? Good. We got like three. All right, good. Some more around the room. Now, we let you get out of the whole greet each other stage, but not fully. Look across the room. Just make eye contact. Give them a big wave. Let them know you're glad you're there they're in church today. For those of you joining us online, we're glad you're with us too. Uh, we're going to be continuing in this series of In the Valley so if you would please, would you turn to Psalm 16? In your Bible, you can Google Psalm 16 on your mobile device. It'll take you there as well. As you're doing that, I want to give you two quick announcements. First of all, we'll be uh, receiving communion together as a church family at the end of service. So as you came in the doors, you may have seen the baskets with the communion cups and the wafer. If, if you didn't grab one, it may be a good time to get it before we get to the end of service. Uh, and as I mentioned, we'll do that together as a church family after the message. And then secondly, just a quick blip to let you know. Uh, some of you have noticed already, I've, I, before moving here, lived in Florida, had some skin damage and getting treatment on it now. So my head is like a ghastly red. Um, it hurts to move my eyebrows. So if you see it, it's not that contagious. You can still walk up to me. It's okay. Um, <laughs> But just want to let you know what's going on. I got about 10 days left, and then we'll start healing, hopefully. In the valley, as we walk through this series, we mentioned this earlier, but we want this to be more than a one-time weekend message. We're doing this series for two reasons. First of all, seasonal depression in this area is very real. It's one of the things I've learned about in nine years now of living here is you better brace yourself because things hit, whether it's the holiday seasons or just everything that goes with the weather change and the lack of sunshine. In a valley, as any of us start in a valley, I, I hope this series is more than a one-time message, but it's a resource for us to be able to go back as we've talked through different aspects of walking through a valley. It can be because of loss. It can be because of uh, something you're going through physically, emotionally, spiritually. It can be relational. It could just be the season of life that you're in. So please don't just see this as a Sunday morning message. I hope you put these in your back pocket for when you need them. And secondly, the second reason we're doing this series is nobody lives on the mountaintop their entire life. Nobody. If you just think about it geographically, a mountaintop is surrounded by valleys. It naturally happens that way. And nobody can stay on the mountaintop all the time. No one who's alive now. No one who's lived in the past. Not even people in the Bible purely stayed on the mountaintop. If you're on the mountaintop, that means you've climbed out of the valley and that can be a tough thing to do. Or you may be ready, you may be in a season where you're about to go back into a valley. This series is about that, no matter what season you're in. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You may be in summer, it's fall outside, but in your life right now, it's productive, there's a lot of fruit to it, it feels joyful, feels like the sun is just shining on you. And someone else sitting in the same row as you this morning may be in the middle of winter. They feel like it's dark and bleak and cold and they have no hope. This series, the goal is to meet you where you are. And if you're in the valley today, please, don't, please know that you don't go through it alone. 
Now, this morning, I'm going to take care of some opening information and kind of set the tone. And then Jeff Letterer, who's our pastor of pastoral care, will be coming and sharing the rest of the message in a moment. Now, as we talk about the mountaintops and the valleys, please remember this. They both exist at the same time. We've said this throughout the series. Perspective is important. No one stays solely in one or the other. As a matter of fact, here's the first point. Here's what I want you to remember. In this life, life is hard and God is good. Life is hard and God is good. I had always heard this statement, and instead of and, there was a but there. Life is hard, but God is good. Like you have an option. I would like this dinner, but there's something wrong with it. I, we could be friends, but... It's like this hitch that keeps you from following through on whatever the second part of the equation is. This could be a good movie, but it's kind of a hint that something's wrong. But if we look at it, life is two tracks. And it's that life is hard and God is good. Can you repeat that statement with me, please? On three, ready? One, two, three. Life is hard and God is good. Tell the person beside you, life is hard and God is good. This is not heaven. We are definitely on earth. Throughout this series, we've looked at the life is hard part. We've looked at the tough stuff that we have to get through. Today, we are going to really hammer down on the fact, we're going to establish the fact that God is good. No matter what's going on in our life, it doesn't change who he is. Psalm chapter 16. We're going to begin reading at verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the scriptures. And we thank you that whether on the mountaintop or in the valley, you're good. It does not change who you are. Father, I pray that we keep an eternal perspective on whatever we're facing in this life. And I pray, God, that this morning we can get a grasp on the goodness of who you are. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you help me welcome Jeff Letterer? Hello, church family. So, um, yeah, uh, 
So the reality is that most of y'all may know me from uh, two places, butchering Wisconsin city names and counseling teddy bears and their emotional issues. Because, you know, face it, like life can become unbearable and sometimes we have to bear with one another. Like, I promise that's the last dad joke you're gonna hear this morning. But I didn't get to hear to say those in the video. They didn't catch it. So I wanted to just throw those out there for your benefit. Take it with you. Use it for your children later. No, but seriously, though, I'm pumped to jump into this psalm. Um, I love the psalms because they're these, like, raw, honest prayers cried out to God with just really there's two realities that, that, uh, that is recognized when the psalms are written, which is that God hears and God moves, even when it feels like he's doing neither of those. And so um, let's dive in. Let's allow God's word to read us, really. So uh, verse 1 and 2 are going to really act as the intro with the rest of the psalm fleshing out how this works out in David's life. Let's read the first two together. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So right off the bat, we're going to see this high view of God in David's life as a man who's confident that God is one who is both safe enough to take refuge in, but also he's faithful enough to preserve him. Like, I hate to say it, church, but I think that oftentimes we kind of believe or see God as our fallback plan. Like, okay, when everything goes wrong, after I've tried everything else, then yeah, God, I'm going to give you a chance to kind of resolve this situation. It's almost like, you know, God, you did the big work of saving us. Let me just handle it from here. And really, uh, th there's this uh, part in this movie that, that it always reminds me of. It's, it's called Saving Private Ryan. It's been over 20 years ago since it came out. So if it's, there's a spoiler here, I'm sorry. But um, so what takes place uh, towards the end of the movie is there's this one soldier that's dying for the sake of the other. And he whispers and he utters these words, earn this. And then we fast forward to like this old man. He's sitting in front of his wife and he's saying like, am I a good man? Have I lived a good life? And it's like, he's asking this question like, how do you measure the value of a life? Have I lived a good enough life to warrant this sacrifice? Like, have I done it? I've been, I've been living my whole life. And he's really living in the slavery of living up to this invisible standard. And David's really gonna come in here and he's gonna speak against this, Lord, I got it from here mentality. And he's gonna acknowledge, God, I still need you now to preserve me, to sustain me. You're safe and you're trustworthy. How many of us so desperately need someone like that in our life? Someone safe and trustworthy. He's then gonna go say, he's gonna go on to say Lord in all caps, which whenever you see all caps for Lord, that's the name Yahweh. And so he's, uh, by saying that, he's setting that apart from any other gods of the nations that exist. He's wanting you to, to think back to, to Moses and the burning bush and the God who called Abraham, the God who changed Jacob's name, like this God, Yahweh, you are my Lord, with just a capital L, which is the Hebrew Adonai, I have no good apart from you. And it's such a powerful statement, and I think it's one that many of us, if we're honest, we kind of struggle to utter. He, he uses the personal name of God as revealed by the patriarchs, but then he makes it personal to himself. You are my Adonai. You are my master, my Lord. He's recognizing God's sovereignty over him and submitting to it in a personal way. And like I said, this may not be groundbreaking. We've heard these titles if you've been in church for any amount of time. But the second part of the verse is what truly really makes it profound because David tells us what Yahweh is his master or Lord over. He states, I have no good apart from you. And this is incredible because he's going back and speaking truth over the lies that have existed from the garden itself. 
the lies that the serpent was whispering to Eve to step out, to stop trusting in God, to gain knowledge that would allow her to determine good and evil, good and bad for herself. And David wants to make it very clear to all peoples, powers, and principalities that Yahweh is his Adonai. And goodness is something he finds in joyful submission to Yahweh. He doesn't want that choice for himself. He has a, a Lord who's worthy of all trust and honor and whose goodness he rests in. He's in glad submission to his Lord because he is good and nothing even comes close to the goodness found in God. He doesn't need to go searching for good things. He just needs Yahweh, his Adonai, his master, his Lord. He is my good, which is really reciting that first point that Jack mentioned. God is our good. Now, if, if you'll notice, I didn't say that like he does good or like he has goodness, but rather like he literally becomes our good. He embodies it. He defines the category for it. It is part of his being. This is the reversal of Eden for David. Yahweh is my Adonai and is the fullness of my good and he's all the goodness I will ever need. Now, if you're like me, I'd love to say this with all integrity um, and I'd love to meet it in every area, but I still struggle in many ways to see and to say this in every nook and cranny. So uh, in our family, we're just coming out of uh, really a season of restoration. We just, we just bought a home, and so there were a number of things that needed to be updated and fixed. And, and honestly, I didn't see what a lot of those were. Um, my, my wife is the, the expert in that area, so she's the one who uh, truly has the eye to see potential. She can do that both uh, in, in houses but also in people. And so when we got in there... Um, like I mentioned, like I, I don't necessarily see details like that. Um, in fact, for a while there, um, what had happened is we were all kind of helping as a family, but really it was my wife and my son, Nathaniel, who were doing most of the work. And so I'd come home from work and there was always something that would like be drastically changed from like morning to night. And so I had kind of had to tell myself like, okay, I've got to, Lord, give me eyes to see what changed. Cause I'm the type of guy that like, I miss those details. Like I could sit in a room and it could have been light and now it's dark and I don't notice. Like I'm, I'm that type of like just obtuse. And so there, that was a struggle for a while there. And the other, other struggle, like I mentioned, is sometimes I have trouble like envisioning like what needs to be fixed, but also what it could look like if it was transformed, like what it could actually appear like if that work was finished. So afterwards, I was blown away by the end result. They did an amazing job. Like our house, I'm just absolutely blessed by it. And C.S. Lewis uses this metaphor in mere Christianity to describe God's work in our lives. I want you to hear this quote. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he's doing. He's, he's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. It doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is, is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you're gonna be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. If we let him, he'll make the feeblest and filthy of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy, wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and it parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. 
Most of us often struggle to say, honestly, you are my Lord. You have access and sovereignty to work in every area of my life, however you see fit. And you are the only good worth pursuing. Like there's a trust there. It goes deeper than circumstances. So how do we get there when all we can see is really what seems like bad things? David's gonna give us a rubric in these verses to show what this practically looks like in his life. So let's continue on in the next two verses, three through four. David states, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now, if you catch this, David is really giving us a glimpse of people in two categories. They've led him to the state that he can declare God's lordship and God's goodness without reservation. So first we have the saints in the land. This word saints, when we look at the rest of scripture, it really, it connotes God's people. It is unequivocally referring to God's holy and chosen people. Usually you see your or his saints in front of it. And it's referring to God's ownership of them. This is God's people. David is saying, my people are God's people and we live good together. My best moments, my sweetest relational delights have come in the context of God's people in my life. And if you know anything of David's life, like he has these folks in his life. Like there's this story um, in one of the battles where he says he's thirsty and he's got these mighty men of God and three of them here, he's thirsty. Their captain and the king is thirsty. They break through the battle lines to go and get him a cup of water and break back. And I'm just, I'm stunned because in my household, there's usually kind of a collective groan when someone's like, can you give me a glass of water after you came back from the kitchen? Like, oh, I gotta go all the way back to the refrigerator, but yeah, I guess. And these guys risked their lives to, to reach and meet the need of their captain and king's parched thirst. And David's so touched by it, like he doesn't even drink it. He pours it out to the Lord, which that's a whole other thing of like, dude, really? They just <laughs> risked their lives? but he was just absolutely touched by it. So he's, he's got these type of people in his life, but he's also got guys like Nathan who are willing to confront the king in sin, which is a risky endeavor if the king doesn't respond well to that confrontation. Our home pastor used to always say that our faith is personal. Absolutely, it must be a relationship, but it was never meant to be private. We were baptized into a people to lock arms with we cannot accomplish what God's asked us to do by ourselves. We need people in our life, which is why we push groups so fervently here at Spring Lake. The other group David mentions are those who spend their time chasing after another God, pouring out their blood in pursuit of these false gods. He sees these folks in the mystery that is taking place as their sorrows, they multiply, pursuing what was never meant to satisfy in these other gods. Elsewhere in Psalm 115, verse eight, uh, the psalmist is going to declare that he who makes idols becomes like, like them, so do, so do all who trust in them. The idolatries of our day might not be spilling blood, but how about spilling finances, sweat equity, precious time, and the ultimate pursuit of what only God can satisfy. David's able to see that their sorrow will multiply in these people's lives. Even if they can't see it yet, he will not participate in their brokenness or even mention the things that they're pursuing. The people we choose to share and do life with ought to be those who press us in our relationship with the Lord and his purposes in our life. And I wanna make a qualifying statement here. I'm not saying don't have relationships with people who don't know or believe in God. 
Like we're in the world. We're meant to be a light in the darkness. But if that's all you have in those relationships, then those who, with those who don't know them, then your ability and your desire to see God's goodness will diminish without gospel-centered voices in your life. And this really brings us to the second point. We need relationships with godly people to help us see God's goodness in our own lives. One of my favorite authors is known for saying, we are often blind to our blindness and unable to see ourselves accurately, which is where others come in with an outside perspective to illuminate these for us. And really, that's the best biblical counseling to offer is this type of being able to peer into those blind spots. As we move on in our text, David's gonna, gonna, gonna also tack, tackle areas of contentment and perspective in these next two verses. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. For some scholars, this text actually does two things. It points back to the portioning of the land, to the tribes of Israel, but also to God's apportioning of David as king. There's this sweet beauty that David is letting us in on. For David, the Lord is his reward. It's not simply a means to an end. He's not a genie in a lamp that gets him what he wants, when he wants. Again, God is say, David is saying, God, you are my good, which is what drives his ability to make those next statements. You hold my lot, which is connoting the idea of lots being cast and there just being this willing trust there because David has this high view of God as the ultimate good to which any good that comes from him is really just an overflow of God's goodness in his life. The whole idea is, is David giving David the kind of contentment that Paul writes about in Philippians 4, 4, 11 through 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not only does this cherishing of God by David give him contentment, it also gives him perspective by which he can interpret rightly the circumstances of his life. David's able to proclaim that the boundaries God has placed in his life have fallen in pleasant places. How often are we prone to rail against God, kind of like children, asking God, why can't we have more? Why aren't we able to do more, earn more, accomplish more, gain more in our lives? Like, why don't we have these abilities? There is this infamous morning um, back in 2012. Um, we call it, uh, well, I'll tell you the name after I tell you the story, but uh, basically what had happened is, uh, and my kids love me telling this story. I knew we had a sermon illustration the moment it happened, and we, we told it. This is now the third church. <laughs> we, had just, we had just had a litter of puppies, four puppies in our house, and our dog, Roxy, had uh, accidentally mated with one of our family dogs, um, for any of y'all have had that happen. And so we have four puppies. We also have a one- and two-year-old kiddos, which are my oldest, uh, oldest kiddos, Hannah and Nathaniel. We didn't have a big house, and so we're housing the puppies in a kiddie play pool in our bedroom, because um, at that time, they're not able to, to climb out. They were still really small. Well, this was the morning that they figured out how to climb out. So uh, we wake up to scurrying about. We're like, okay, yeah, it's, we, we're waiting for this to happen. Not realizing that it wasn't just that they got out. It was what happened before they got out and, um, and after that really made the mess, which is they were covered in what I can only describe as brown. <clears throat> and so uh, we encountered a brown mess 
um, in our bedroom, in our bathroom. And uh, so we're, we're scrambling about. We're trying to wash off puppies. We're trying to get them to a stable place, trying to get the situation to where it's not as chaotic as it is. So we wash that out. We get it to a place where we're like, okay, the puppies are in a cage. Like they're, they're, they're taken care of. We can now go wake up the kiddos. So we go to uh, first my my daughter's door, Hannah, and uh, we uh, begin to open the door. And like, as we open the door, like I'm hit with an aroma of like, oh no, like what am I about to see? And for any of you parents, you know what that's like. You're like, oh, oh my. And sure enough, like we open that door. And again, it, it's a brown artistry has taken place. My, my daughter has taken her, her diaper off and has used the contents of that diaper as her artistic tools. And so we've got it. I mean, it's on the white crib, the mattresses, the, the, the loveys that she's got in her mouth. Like, and she's just so happy to see us, just bouncing up and down, like full of joy. And we're just horrified. And uh, I, like, I'm the type when something like that happens, I freeze. My wife, like, she jumps into action. So I'm like, oh, yeah, we got to do something. And because uh, I just don't even know where to start. And so she grabs a baby. Starts, gets her in the bathtub, starts cleaning her off, and I'm trying to just damage control, put things in, in you know, a trash bag to either you know, clean it or, or burn it you know, later. <laughs> and so we get, so we get the, her into kind of a little bit of a stable spot. She's still in the bathtub. I'm like, okay, wait, we gotta go wake up our two-year-old. You know, we gotta go get Nathaniel. He's been patiently waiting the whole time. And again, I open the door, and again, it's hit by an aroma. And I'm like, maybe that's just because my nostrils are burned from the previous room. Maybe this isn't what it is. And so I open it up, and sure enough, it's almost the exact same thing. Like, diaper came loose. It's not as bad as the first one, like, because he hadn't really gotten creative with it. But he's, he's covered as well. And again, he's just super happy to see us and just to greet us. And good morning, you know, mommy and daddy. And again, we're horrified. So, the, you know, the third round of it happens. We take him, we're, we're, we get him in the bathtub, we're washing him off and trying to just damage control the whole situation. And the crazy thing about it is that both puppies and babies didn't start crying or tears flowing until we started the cleanup process. Like up to that point, they were so happy, almost proud of their situation that they were in. They had no idea that like the danger of like the, just the muck that they were in, how filthy the environment was. And so they didn't at all understand the frenetic like disinfecting and washing that we were doing, you know, you know, rubbing enough to make their skin a little bit pink just to make sure every morsel's gone. They had no idea what was going on. They had no reason to distrust us, but they just, they simply didn't understand why mom and dad were putting them through this process. Now, how many of us right, are right there when God steps in and he places a boundary marker in our life? Like, how quick are we to rail against that boundary, not understanding what God might be accomplishing in that marker? And how many of us are seemingly content to kind of muck around in the mess of our lives because doing something about it is going to be hard and maybe even painful? I mean, we all respond like David and take a moment to consider the inherent goodness of God's purposes and plans in our life, even when we don't understand them. They overflow from his very goodness into our lives. And this is our third point. God's purposes and plans in our lives are good because he is good. Interpreting our lives can be the most difficult thing we do, but if we learn this, then even the most perplexing of life situations can be endured because we have a God who holds us and who is worthy of our trust. David affirms this very truth in the next couple of verses. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. 
This is where our brother David is letting us in on the goodness of God's wisdom and truth. Even as our hearts are struggling to own his truth in our lives, there's really the hope of the interaction with God's truth, which is found most efficiently in his word, is that we would take it into our hearts in glad agreement and submission. Like a good advisor to the king, David blesses God as his wonderful counselor and the one who David sets both before him as the one he's running toward, but also the one who's running alongside him, holding him up and sustaining him on that journey. For David, God's goodness is found in abiding in God's good and right counsel that's strong enough to stand firmly in and not be shaken. Now, if you notice there, God's presence did not mean calamity would not come just because he was there, but rather his presence was strong enough to endure whatever life-shaking circumstance may come. Much of our lives are a surprise, right? We react to what comes, which is all the more why we need a God who's not an ambulance driver getting to the scene going, okay, what needs to happen? What did take place? But rather the surgeon that knows the instrumental little cuts that need to be made for true healing to happen. And this brings us to our fourth point. God's word and presence guides us into what is ultimately good. As we round out our psalm today, David's leaving us on a truly high note that should lead us to ever-increasing joy and worship. David ends Psalm 16 with these words. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David's again peering back the veil of his own life and letting us in on the secret to fully embracing God's goodness in our lives. And this is the truth. We are finite beings. We are not guaranteed tomorrow, nor do most of us even know what tomorrow holds. A moment, a phone call, a conversation could change our lives indefinitely as we move forward. Some of us may leave today and have something happen to us, find some new information that will redirect the rest of our days. How can David, as a fellow human being, proclaim, my flesh dwells secure and my heart is glad? As any good Bible teacher points out, David puts a therefore in there, so you gotta ask why the therefore is therefore. He's rejoicing in what was just spoken, that no matter what comes, I won't be shaken because you're with me. Even if the worst imaginable thing can happen, you won't abandon me. Even if my next step leads to death, which is what Sheol is, you won't abandon me. Peter's gonna quote back to these last four verses in Acts 2. He quotes Psalm 16, and he proclaims something truly amazing. And I want us to read what he says right after he quotes it. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now, what's incredible about what Peter just said is that David is speaking prophetically in the psalm that we're reading today, looking forward to the day when the Messiah would sit on his throne. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, and that is true in both Testaments. In the New Testament, we look back on the finished work of Christ's death and resurrection. The Old Testament, they look toward that same work. 
David's not just saying, God, I really hope you're gonna take care of my tomorrows. No, he firmly believes it's been revealed that his future is filled with fullness of joy, pleasures forever, because it's gonna be spent in God's presence and nothing could be better. And that really is our final point today. God's goodness begins here and extends into eternity, ever increasing our joy. We will experience the greatest joy in his unfettered and uninterrupted presence. So much of what we see and experience in the here and now will be but a blip 10,000 years from now. The things that last, the things that are eternal are the areas that God declares good as he leads us into his ever-deepening awareness of his presence and his movement in and throughout our lives. God is good and he does good out of the infinite overflow of his character, that goodness into our lives. Church, let's pray. Father, we, we must first admit that we cannot do this work on our own. Just like David, Lord, we need you to preserve us. We need you to sustain us. We need you to do what only you can. We need you to give us eyes to see your goodness. We need you to, to move in in our lives. Help us to recognize your good work, even in the most perilous of circumstances, to know you are with us. And Lord, that is more than enough. Your grace is sufficient. Your power is made perfect in our weakness. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us meditate on that reality as we move into communion and in worship, giving you glory for the greatest good we have ever received in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. to lay down his life for those who were in rebellion against him. This morning, as we receive communion in just a moment, and you can do it standing or sitting, whichever you choose, what I'd like us to do is to remember God's goodness in our life. Most of the time, we go to God, and we may start with a section of prayer that says, thank you, but then we go into our laundry list of what we need. 
This morning, what I'd like us to do is if we would, and those of you watching online, you can do it right where you are as well, is can we take a moment and just reflect on God's goodness in our life, where we've been blessed, the people he's brought into our life, the breath in our lungs, the beauty around us, the relationships we have. What I'd like us to do is just, can we bow our heads, close our eyes for a moment, and just reflect on, think on God's goodness to us. Through the cross, through family and friends, through our lives, through the grace he's blessed us with, to the forgiveness that we have for all the dumb things, the rebellious things we've done against him. On the night that Christ was betrayed before his crucifixion, he had had dinner with his disciples. And after dinner, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. A choice he willingly made out of his goodness, out of the essence of who he is for us. You may take and eat the bread. And he took the wine or our juice and he says, this is my blood which has been shed for you. Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. All that we've done, that diaper that came off and we've spread around the room, it's still on us if it's not for the blood of Jesus. What a good God we serve. You can take and drink the juice. Thank you, God, for your goodness and graciousness to us. To us, May we never take it for granted. May we reflect it to the world around us. And may we continue to have a heart of gratitude. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you all please stand as we sing this together?
So as we prepare to leave and reflect that goodness and love of God to the community around us, wherever he may take us this week, I want to give you a few reminders of events coming up. You'll see them on the screens. Uh, the classes that are beginning. One I want to highlight is that lead class. It really goes into some of the detail of who we are as a church, understanding how our leadership structure works, but it also moves beyond the walls of the church and what does it look like to work with and lead in the people we work with. They say everybody influences eight to 10 people. That means you're leading people whether you realize it or not. So I'd encourage you to check into the lead class. It starts this week. You can go online and find out more about that. All of the information that you see here can be, uh, you can find out more at the Welcome Center or online. If you are here this morning and you have any area in your life where you may need prayer, you're facing a challenge, we have prayer partners who will be over by the cross after service. Be glad to pray with you whatever you may be going through in life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this time of being the church gathered together and learning from the scriptures, Lord, prayerfully being encouraged to realize how good you are. God, in spite of how bad the world may feel, we serve and have the presence of a good God with us. I pray that as we leave this building that we will be, as scripture says, lights to those around us. God, bringing light into the darkness of community or family or work or wherever it may be that you send us. God, may Green Bay, may Brown County, may Wisconsin or, or any place we set our foot be in a better place. May there be hope, not because of us, but as scripture says, because of the hope that's in us, and that's Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness in us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.